Hello, chums, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. Who'd have ever thought this thing would go the distance? What I once referred to as a vanity project, because basically I really didn't think anyone would be interested in listening to me on my own, after we used to hearing me chatting to my son Michael over on Hey Kids Comics, just waffling about all the kind of genre entertainment that that I like that entertains me, be it Jerry Anderson, be it old westerns, be it 70s cop shows, cartoons, comics, books, films, whatever. It was a pop culture potpourri, uh, and there was already a lot of pop culture potpourri shows out there. Um, and it it's it staggered me that this has has kind of taken off, and people seem to the people that listen to it like it. It's I consider this the supernatural of podcasts. Supernatural is one of those TV shows has a very loyal fan following, not a particularly big one, and that's what this show feels like. The people that like it get it, and I appreciate those people wholeheartedly for liking this show because. As I said, it's just me talking about whatever the hell I want to talk about. And whatever the hell I want to talk about tonight, today, tomorrow, and always, whenever you're listening to this, is um, the original pilot episode for my all-time favourite television series, Star Trek. Yep, I'm going to be watching The Cage. So this is just your warning to get ye to Netflix, or dig out your DVDs, or whatever. I'm watching this on Netflix. Um, that would probably be the best way for you to watch it, because I presume that the speeds will be the same, whereas if you're watching the DVD, whatever country you're in, depending on what region you are, you may find there's slight differences, slight discrepancies in the speed that the, the show runs at, depending on whether it's NTSC or PAL or whatever. Um, the reason for this is I love this pilot movie. It's one of my favourites, one of my favourite episodes of the original Star Trek, but we'll get all that as we go along so queue up netflix queue up your dvd put it on pause for a second if you want to according to my netflix the runtime for this is one hour three minutes 40 seconds if yours is the same then we shouldn't have any problems with syncing up if you're one of those people who just likes to listen to this without actually watching it that's fine you know i'll try and make it as entertaining as possible and i'm gonna go uh, i have foregone the usual opening titles for this one, and I'm just going to go straight into the cage in three, two, one, play. Alexander Sandy Courage's original theme for the original Star Trek. Sorry, just let me turn the volume down there. I am watching this through my headphones, so you won't hear the volume. Copyright, I'm sure you understand. Uh, the opening credits, very similar to the opening credits that would open the series. Although the logo Star Trek is not the original logo that you would see every week. It's just flatter. It kind of looks like it's got a blue haze to it. Although the writing is white. Starring Jeffrey Hunter. Guest starring Susan Oliver. So Susan Oliver gets credited above Gene Roddenberry. Who just got his credit there. And obviously the other guest cast. Um, This opening shot here of the Enterprise, and we zoom in through the top of the saucer section and into the bridge, is an absolutely magnificent effect for the era. Here they are, the very first words spoken in Star Trek. Check the circuit. If you actually have a look at this pilot episode, how impressive it is for something that was shot in, in 1962. 1965? I think it was 1964, wasn't it, that this was screened? Or uh, filmed around Christmas time, I believe, that this was filmed. The bridge set is an absolutely masterful set. Still looks impressive today. Looks arguably better than the bridge set of the original show because there's more of a there's more of a NASA sheen to it. It's more metallic. It looks less gaudy in its colour scheme, more believable. Uh, it's better, it's a better bridge than the next generation, I think. Oh, one thing <coughs> I am going to have to point out, I have got a bit of the dreaded lurgy. So normally I will edit out coughs and sputters and sniffles. I can't do that in a commentary, obviously, so I apologise. I do have a drink, but I can't cut them, so I'm sorry for that. And while I was just taking a drink there, I caught the microphone. That's professional, isn't it? 
lots of interesting characters on the bridge there. Obviously, Jeffrey Hunter, here playing Captain Christopher Pike, was not the first choice. The names on the roster as possible castings for Captain Pike included Lloyd Bridges, who was the favourite, but also actors like Peter Graves, Rod Taylor, Mike Connors, George Siegel, Ephraim Zimbalis Jr., Warren Stevens, and William Shatner. Uh, once NBC had had their say, Patrick O'Neill, James Coburn, Jeffrey Hunter were the ones that were narrowed down. Hunter is... Hunter, for the longest time, Christopher Pike was, was my favourite Starship captain. Largely, I suspect, because this was all we saw of him. You know, I love Shatner as Kirk and Patrick Stewart as Picard. But we didn't really see well, people are in non-regulation uniform. You know, maybe there's a pool on this Enterprise because it looks like they're going to go and have a sunbathe or something. Close-up shot of the communicator though, which is quite an unusual what's it? Uh, anyway, yeah, Jeffrey Hunter. So Jeffrey Hunter, Jeffrey Hunter's arc in this episode is quite interesting. A lot of people have said that you know maybe swapping him out for Shatner was a good move, simply because. Hunter comes across as quite morose in this, quite flat in many places. But in a lot of ways, he has exactly the same story arc in this episode as, as Ben Sisko does in the pilot for, for Deep Space Nine. Both of them start in quite a low place. Uh, apparently, Enterprise has just come out of a mission that did not go well. Throughout the episode, we can see Spock limping as a result of that mission. And over the course of the episode, Pike lightens up and realises that he doesn't want to quit Starfleet. He wants to to carry on being a Starship captain. Similar, like I said, to the arc that Ben Sisko goes on in Deep Space Nine. The relationship between the captain and the doctor. Here, Captain uh, Pike and Dr. Boyce. I believe is Doctor Boyce in this one, isn't it? Because it's Doctor Piper in uh, in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Before we finally get Doctor McCoy in the series proper, Roddenberry wanted DeForest Kelly for this pilot. Director of this episode, Robert Butler, nixed that idea. Up until that point, DeForest Kelly was primarily known for playing heavies, bad guys, in westerns, and therefore. Butler didn't really think that Kelly would suit this role of the friendly doctor. So John Hoyt got the gig. At the time of the of the casting, Jeffrey Hunter was, was 37 years of age. Generally unusual for the guy to take a TV series role at this point. Hunter was a movie star. He'd starred in The Searchers, The Proud Ones, Kiss Before Dying, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, very... Oh, King of Kings, sorry, Jesus of Nazareth came later, didn't it? But, um... He's interesting. You know, his jet black hair and his bright blue eyes. He, he, you could see why he was a movie star. The camera's very fond of him. I like Hunter in this. I think he's he's great in this pilot. He's... He's dealing with the idea that maybe being a starship captain isn't all he wants to be, all he wants to do. And I think this scene is... It's an unusual pilot for the era in that it is very cinematic in how it's telling its story. It's not opening with an action beat like um, a lot of pilot episodes will. And... Indeed, like, where no man has gone before, Will, where no man has gone before, will open with a much more action-orientated script. This one is cinematic. It's filmic in that it's opening very slowly. It's introducing us to the characters. The look of the thing is, is completely unlike anything else that I think had been seen on television at this point. One of the things that always surprised me about this was even though this pilot didn't go to series was that Paramount never hit upon the idea of releasing this as a theatrical movie. You know, I know it was chopped up into the two-part episode, The Menagerie, but the 
the actual whole piece. I wonder if it's because they originally didn't have a full colour version. How I was introduced to this, the first time I saw this, I know Roddenberry toured conventions and, and the, the college circuit with a copy that was black and white. The theory or the pervading belief at the time being that the, the colour version didn't exist anymore. When it came to video, the last episode released in the video series in the US, and the first one released here before the rest of the series was The Cage, and the colour scenes were all lifted straight from the menagerie, and the black and white scenes were spliced in to, to hide up the gaps. Roddenberry had an introduction at the beginning of that. Oh, you can see Lieutenant Tyler has got his hand bandaged as a result of what happened on Rigel 7. Um... What was I saying? Oh, yeah, and it was released on videotape as monochromatic and colour. Uh, sometime later, some might say cynically, Paramount discovered a colour version in the vaults. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was subsequently re-released on video, and that's the version that uh, is now available on DVD and Blu-ray. Cleaned up, it does look Absolutely stunning. I, I don't think you'd peg this as being made in 1964. I don't think if you looked at this and just watched it, unknown, carte blanche, unknown, you wouldn't think that this was as old as it is. I think you'd probably guess that maybe it was made, you know, 10 years later, maybe in the 70s or something. The, the colours still pop, even though everybody doesn't have... The red jumpers are nowhere to be seen in this particular indication, indication, um, installment. Everything's yellow and blue. They're the only uniforms that were given. Quite surprising how small Spock's role is in this. He isn't the co-star of the show at this point. Leonard Nimoy, obviously, playing Mr. Spock, was um, somebody that Roddenberry had in mind from the beginning, as he wanted someone vaguely alien-like. Nimoy was 33 when he filmed this part in the cage, he wasn't, he's always had a love-hate relationship with Spock as Leonard Nimoy, certainly in the early days. And he did start to get cold feet about doing the role right up to filming, and Ronbury apparently had to talk him down from, from quitting. Obviously, it would become the role he is most synonymous with. Number one, who is given a name in some various... Star Trek Extended Universe stuff is just referred to as number one. Here is Majel Barrett. Roddenberry had to fight for Majel to get this role, um, largely because the general feeling around the offices was he was giving her this role because he was shagging her. And um, they had nothing against her. They thought she was fine as an actress. They weren't necessarily convinced that she was co-star material the second lead essentially would have been the idea that number one would have been the second lead obviously that all changed as it as it went to series the transporter beam as we can see here it's very similar to what we would see when the series made its debut but a lot slower which um obviously as we went into next generation everything that showed the increased technology where we fall down ever so slightly is obviously and the planet sets Star Trek. Star Trek never gets the recognition that it rightfully deserves for creating this kind of planet alien landscapes on a weekly basis. You know, I've said many times before, Bonanza couldn't make the Ponderosa look real, and yet here was Star Trek churning out alien landscapes and starships on a weekly basis. It's not that this is bad by any stretch of the imagination, but it is painfully obvious to us nowadays that what you're watching here is a set with a matte painting in the background. It's a very good matte painting. Uh, it does give a sense of illusion of depth to the proceedings, and, and although the original show would have many, many good matte paintings over its three-season run, never quite the quality of that. They were able to take the time and the money in this pilot movie. The pilot movie, apparently by today's money, would be around $5 million. Ooh, Spot just smiled. How unusual. Would be around $5 million, which is 
an awful lot of money for a pilot in 1964. I mean, if we put that into perspective, by, by 1978, the pilot for Battlestar Galactica was costing around 10 million, I believe. So the fact that this cost half that 10 years earlier shows how much money they'd thrown into this. But it, I think it shows every penny of that is on screen. Nowhere does this look like a cheap production. It very much feels like these guys wanted to make a serious science fiction story that could hold up for adults and not just the kid vids, which is what the ghetto that science fiction kind of lived in at the time that this was made. <coughs> Excuse me. On the planet... I love that line there about the time barrier being broken, which, you know, they'd later wreck on to be warp drive. Our first look here at Vina, who is second cast, and let's be brutally honest about it. Susan Oliver is drop-dead gorgeous in this pilot movie. Um, she's If she's not at the top... She is certainly in the top three, maybe after Tapring and Yeoman Tonya Barrows, of um, my favourite Star Trek girls. She's she's stunningly beautiful in this. Blonde hair, blue eyes. At the time that this was made, uh, and I, I hate not being able to edit because I can't hide the fact that I'm desperately trying to find where her age is given in this uh, this boot that I'm leafing through. I think she was 33 at the time that she was she was filming this. I did have it highlighted. Yeah, yeah well, never mind. Susan Oliver playing Vina. We never go into how all these old men and this one young woman <laughs> and what they did for fun. Maybe Vina kept them entertained, I don't know. But uh, look at that face. Look at those eyes. Very easy to lose yourself in Susan Oliver's eyes. Alexander Courage, obviously, it deserves credit as well for the score. The score for this episode is absolutely stunning. I love this pilot movie score. Some of the music would uh, be reused over the duration of the series. But it never never sounded right to me when they recycled the score for this episode. I'm much more of a fan of um, episodes having unique scores. And this, this has a very unique score. Um, whilst Courage is certainly capable of doling out the melodramatic fight music when he needs to, there is a, an otherworldly, appropriately enough, feel to the score to this episode that um, really does capture the action very, very well. Absolutely, absolutely great score from Alex Courage. Courage would return to Trek for Where No Man Has Gone Before and then have a falling out with Roddenberry. Roddenberry, one of his rather typical Disney dealings, would write lyrics for the opening theme Lyrics that would never be used, and opinion differs on whether he knew they would never be used, but that enabled him to create, to be eligible for a 50% loyalty, loyal loyalty, royalty payment, which Alexander Courage felt that he'd stiffed him on, uh, on money. Our first look at the Telosians, or the Buttheads. Uh, interesting effect with the Telosians. They've not actually spoke yet. We've only seen them. But what they would do with them was they would have young women. I'd say young. Probably not terribly young. Uh, they would have women play them, but then dub the voiceover with men to give them, again, another otherworldly and off-putting feel. Look at the, the special effects, though. With the, they've not... Are they still are they phasers at this point? I don't know that they're referred to as phasers in this pilot. That guy there, I don't know who he is, but he's also got a plaster on his neck. So whatever happened on Rigel Seven was obviously uh, quite devastating to the crew. 
Ooh. You're going to burn out your memory banks there, mate. So Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. <laughs> Captain Pike. Captured by the Telosians. And it's up to Spock to inform the Enterprise crew. Oh, it was all a con. See, I do. I would. I'd like to go back to the alternate universe where where this sold, and um, and see did Star Trek become what it became? You know, with Jeffrey Hunter in the lead. I mean, certainly from our perspective, this is a very interesting time in the Star Trek timeline, largely unexplored in in real time in many ways. I mean, Dorothy Fontana. Who was a consultant on this pilot? Apparently, or even though she, even though Roddenberry wrote it um, from his own on his own, wrote a novel, uh, Vulcan's Glory, I believe, which detailed Pike. I think it was Spock's first mission on the Enterprise with Pike. Interestingly, in that novel, Scotty's on board. So I presume Scotty came on board not long after the events of this. Although nowhere in this pilot does it give you an indication as to when in Pike's five-year mission this is. You know, it's it's obviously long enough into his five-year mission for him to be established, for him to know his crew. The shots um, of all the alien life forms in the cage, well handled. They do a good job with the Birdman, though, of slowing the footage down. Not in an obvious way, just to make it look like he's behaving in a very alien or moving in a very alien way. Ah, the planetary buttheads come in. I do wonder what the... I mean, I suppose they're supposed to be evoking brains with that, uh, with the shape that the heads are, but it really does look like somebody's ass. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> Space Vehicle Enterprise. Malachi Throne providing some of the voices there. Malachi would appear in Star Trek in the Menagerie. Had quite an illustrious career in Malachi Throne. He's a he's a great bad guy in the Binet Woman episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man or the Return of the Binet Woman. I forget which ones. He's also False Face in the two part episode of Batman of the same name. The Talosians probably are really, really irritating. In the sense that uh, they are very smug. At the time that this was made, this was probably a, a new concept. Roddenberry would ultimately go back to the well of uh, aliens holding humanity hostage only for humanity to rebel because, you know, we don't like being caged. We don't like being told what to do. Humans deserve to be free. They deserve to explore. And a, a cage, no matter how well-appointed, how luxurious, is still a cage. I'm wondering, in watching this, what made people think that Nimoy's spot was the one to keep? I mean, he is certainly visually the most interesting character. I mean, Dr. Boyce is, you know, he's a prototype McCoy, but he's not McCoy. He's not got McCoy's acerbic wit. He doesn't do battle with Spock in quite the same way. There's a lot of the the character motivations that we would associate with Star Trek missing from the cage. But that's it's a different crew, it's a different dynamic. After I bought this on video, and I, I think it was £7.99, £7.99 for one episode, even though it was filmic, 
quality. It was still seven ninety nine. If you look at it now, you can buy you can almost buy entire seasons of certain television shows on Blu-ray in far higher quality than uh, than this was in on videotape for the same price. Seven ninety nine. Anyway, I watched this. I watched this quite a lot. I watched it on a loop. I, I generally do love this episode. It does feel heavily influenced by Forbidden Planet. Maybe Roddenberry's going down the Glenn Larson avenue of taking his inspiration from a popular feature film. It's it's a little bit more friendly than Forbidden Planet. The the just the look, the characters, you know, and it feels a bit more futuristic than Forbidden Planet simply by not having stuff like a ship's cook. You know, that that kind of dates Forbidden Planet a bit. The idea that they've got the technology to make food seemed quite quite futuristic. Although Nick Mayer would, would not like that and he would ignore it when he came to make Star Trek 6. I like all the way through it, the Telosians are trying to, to make Pike enjoy his captivity. And here we, have, here we have one of the very few, in fact I think the only scene in the oh no it's not this but I'm getting ahead of myself because I watched it a couple of days ago in preparation for doing this. Uh, another beautiful map painting. If memory serves, isn't this map painting here of the castle with the big moon in the background, which is representing Rigel Seven? Isn't this the cover of the magazine that um, Commander Cisco works for in that Deep Space Nine where he's an author? Um, Far Beyond the Stars, I think it's called. That's a great episode of Deep Space Nine. So to get Pike to capitulate, they're reliving something that is in his own mind, and obviously the Rigel 7 event is heavy on his mind at the moment. So they've given him Vina as a, as, a, as a Disney princess, essentially a damsel that needs rescuing. to try and engage him in what's going on. Again, good work on the sets, good work on the set dressing. The costumes, let's throw a particular congratulatory out for the costumes. These wraparound jackets that the crew wore when they beamed down do make some kind of sense. You know, in the original show, they never showed the cast make any preparations for it being a slightly cold temperature on the planet or whatever. They always just beam down in whatever they were wearing. They never donned a coat or 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 even put in put on less clothes, put shorts and a t-shirt on because it was a warm climate. Here, all of the crew have gone down to this planet that looks very overcast in these, these grey wraparound jackets. And this... I don't know if it's just the HD quality... Of this particular print that's here on um, on Netflix, I've no idea if this episode got an HD do over like the series did. I couldn't tell if that opening shot of the Enterprise was the original effect or if it was a new added in effect. Either way, it's still very impressive. But the costume, the the silver sparkles in the costume are really good. One of the things I like about the cage that I think a lot of people respond to with Star Trek is it isn't just mindless action. There is there's a there's a story going on here, there's an exploration of character going on here. Even though Alexander Courage's music is now do 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 Now I'm sounding like Keop in Battle of the Planets. Um this isn't one of the best choreographed fight scenes in Star Trek history, but there is a rough and readiness to it that as we get into the Shatner era we don't get. We got very much staged fist fights once Shatner came on board. That fight there between Pike and, and the big burly man who's just getting back up, it, it feels rough. It also feels like Pike's not on the winning end. And that was one of the things that we, we never really got. In the original show, we never really felt that Kirk was in any danger when it came to a fist fight. Here, it very much feels like Pike or 
Pike stunt double as that was. Because that was not Jeffrey Hunter. Is in a in his is in a real precarious position. He really does feel like he's not gonna win. There's a danger to this pilot movie that I think once we get past the first five or six episodes of the, the show goes away. And the 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 violent level of this, he just just got stabbed in the back and then quite clearly fell on a blade. This is I don't think it gets a lot of credit for being a very mature piece of television. Like I said, this could have been released theatrically in like 1965, and I think it would have blown people away. Oh, Vina's now got a bob, and looks absolutely beautiful, because, you know, Susan Oliver. Do, 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 do. Love Alex, Alex Courage's score for this. Absolutely stunning. Ah, excuse me, just taking a drink. Pike's now working out whether the situation that he's in, whether she's real or whether she's illusion. Yeah, well, we'd be happy if you didn't wear anything, Vina. Well, maybe, maybe that would have been pushing it too far on its maturity level. Because one of the things that apparently the NBC executives did ball cat. I mean, we all know the story about this was too cerebral for television. I don't, I don't believe that. I, I think that this, this is similar to Twilight Zone, to some of Rod Surley's best episodes of Twilight Zone, in that it is adult storytelling. It's not for kids. But at the same time, I don't think um, a TV viewing audience of 1965 wouldn't understand this. I don't think the story is, is obtuse or deliberately complex. I think it, it takes its time in telling the story that it's telling. You can't predict exactly where this is going to go from, you know, five, ten minutes in, which you can with an awful lot of television you can you can pretty much go especially of this vintage you can you can normally go watch 10 minutes of it and know exactly what's going to happen exactly what story beats are going to be touched on and exactly how it's all going to wrap up and this doesn't feel like that at all this feels quite daring and different and new and and mature and maybe as i said the nbc executives bolt the level of violence as i just referred to the the poor i say poor he was attacking our hero wasn't he the big barbarian guy getting stabbed through the gullet that probably didn't uh, endear him but they also felt there was also a feeling that Susan Oliver as Vina was very overly sexualized and that maybe that was a bit too much for 1960s TV and that that will be answered in the second pilot where there is no overt sexuality sexualization of the female lead in that episode, Dr. Elizabeth Dana in that episode wears a, a standard Starfleet uniform and pants. It has to be noted, not the, not even a miniskirt all the way through. Whereas Vina's wearing that like silver sparkly dress and that's pretty much it. She is very much a sex object in this episode and deliberately so. She is being used by the Telosians to entice Captain Pike and how better to appeal to the male ego than to give him a beautiful young woman to protect. So it's it's one of those instances, I think, where the overt sexuality that is being exuded by Susan Oliver is justified by the story. As we went into the original show, that would go away. <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of inherent sexism in the early episodes of Star Trek. But, you know, it was the 60s. That was the time that they were made. The fact that they made the strides that they did with regards to women on television in Star Trek, is quite remarkable. If you look at some of the roles of the women in Star Trek episodes, it's a lot better than a lot of contemporary other shows, unless it's like Lucille Ball, who is the star of the show. I mean, even in this one here, you've got um, Majel Barrett, though, playing essentially the second-in-command. Um, again, it's popular myth that... perpetuated by Roddenberry, in many cases but uh, that they didn't like a strong woman in command. By all accounts, that 
isn't true accounts in you know mark cushman's book of these are the voyages and inside star trek by herb solow and robert f simon that robert s justman sorry that uh the idea is they weren't particularly enamored with major barrett in that role for reasons that we've already discussed maybe had roddenberry cast somebody else in the role of number one a different female actress maybe somebody with a bit more what they call star power maybe the the show would have taken a completely different tack uh and maybe it could have gone to her with um a woman a second in command that would have been great some people think uh if they'd made a a fantastic four movie in 1966 jeffrey hunter would have been great as reed richards Susan Oliver as um, Sue Storm. That would probably work. Yeah, in fact, you could probably cast this entire movie, couldn't you? Use people for this entire telefilm as members of the Fantastic Four. I think that's been discussed on the burn board or something. Director of this pilot was Robert Butler who, uh, for a while, earned the, the nickname King of the Pilots. Robert Butler directed the pilot movies for... Well, the pilot episodes for Batman, um, the Riddler two-parter. Uh, also directed the pilot for Moonlighting, some 20 years later. Uh, apparently, Robert Butler was the guy that you go to when you want your, your pilot movie created. Um... It's a good gig directing a pilot movie because apparently, if you, I've learned from uh, Michael Rosenbaum's podcast, that if you direct a pilot movie, you get a salary for every subsequent episode of that show. So, for example, if you directed the pilot movie for Smallville, you got paid for 10 years. So, whether Butler got paid for this. For, for every year, I don't know. He also did the pilot of Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, and Lois and Clark. So he has a, a Superman connection. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah, need to take a drink. Oh, the planet of the buttheads. It it is. It does work. It still works. This idea of of taking a woman. And making her up to look vaguely male, and then filtering the voice in such a way as to be to have no real elements of either sex is still quite unnerving and alien. Um, the fact that Med Wiley seems to have a lazy eye as well is is quite good for the character. Uh, I can I wonder if this was a scene that uh, NBC had trouble with as well. The scene where the Talosians torture Captain Pike again. Great performance from from Jeffrey Hunter. Great music. Anyway, as I was saying, Robert Butler felt that maybe the script was a little bit obtuse. He felt that maybe Roddenberry could have gotten to the point a little bit quicker. But um, Roddenberry, as is well known at this point, was quite stubborn. Didn't really want to hear that uh, maybe the script needed reworking. He did work quite hard on this one. Produced a number of different drafts. If if the movie is about anything, I, I read, and there are other interpretations available, I read it's about second chances. You know, Captain Pike is in a very low position as this story earns. Opens, sorry, Vina is in a very low position as this episode opens. Both people need somebody. Both people need something to maybe give their life focus. With Pike, it's been able to return to the Enterprise.
See, the problem when you're doing something like this is obviously losing yourself in the plot. And uh, as I've said, I, f I find the pilot to be quite a fascinating look at what could have been. This conversation in the middle between Pike and the lead to Lotion. Very similar in many ways to a scene in the much derided Star Trek V, the I need my pain scene. Essentially, that's what Pike's arguing here. That he needs his pain, he needs these experiences, he needs the good and the bad to offset whatever has happened in his life. Apparently in the 22nd century or the 23rd century, whenever this is made, well, Double Denim will come back in. Which is nice, I suppose, if you own shows in Levi. Uh, this is, I believe, I, I prefer to stand corrected, but I believe the only scene in the history of the original Star Trek to take place on Earth. So the Telosians have now created the illusion of Pike Vena on Earth. Captain Pike here. Um, the first in a long line of Star Trek captains that seems to like horse riding. As we will later discover, Kirk likes horse riding. Uh, Picard likes horse riding. And so did Captain Pike. The Marvel Comics did uh, a series, Star Trek Early Voyages, which focused on the adventures of Pike and the crew under his command. Number one, Mr. Spark, Lieutenant Tyler, Dr. Boyce. Unfortunately, only ran for 17 issues, but again, not considered canon. I believe there's a number of novels, as I mentioned, Vulcan's Glory and a couple of others centred around the Pike era. But this largely does remain an unexplored part of Star Trek lore. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is really the only in-canon appearance of, of Captain Pike and his crew until, you know, the second season of Star Trek Discovery launches. I, um, I don't consider Bruce Greenwood to be Captain Pike. I don't know. I have nothing against Bruce Greenwood. I think he's a great actor, but I don't think... He didn't... If you'd have shown me him in in those J.J. Abrams reboot movies and said, this is Captain Christopher Pike, I, I didn't buy it. I wouldn't have bought it. And I didn't buy it. I didn't buy him as being Pike. He doesn't have even the faintest superficial similarity to Captain Pike as depicted here. Whereas it seems that for Anson Mount, who's going to be playing Pike in Star Trek Discovery, he does have a look of Jeffrey Hunter. And I'm hoping that he's uh, he's going to live up to the challenge. I hope it's not going to be a disappointment to see Pike. With all these announcements that CBS are doing streaming mini-shows, I cannot but think that maybe we're going to get a mini-series with Pike and the crew because they keep announcing these castings of Pike and then Spock and various other people. And number one, Rebecca Ramin is playing number one. I can't help but think they've gone for a cast the that is perhaps a little bit more expensive and high profile than for just a one-shot guest shot. And I think maybe we're going to get some more episodes centred around Pike. I really like Jeffrey Hunter's performance in this episode. You know, you can argue that he doesn't have William Shatner's swagger. And he doesn't, because he's a very different kind of actor. You could, you could probably even argue a case that he's, he's not as charming or as film-friendly as William Shatner. But I think that, that really sets him out from the crowd. I, I wonder if he could have been a brilliant film star. Because his performance in this is really, is really impressive. And I think it's a shame that he died very young, very early. You know, I don't think Star Trek had even gone off the air before he passed away. Pike didn't return to the show. Um... Different reports on why. You know, some people say that his contract called for a series, a pilot, and then a series. And if the series didn't get picked up on this pilot, he wasn't contractually obligated to go to do a second pilot. He was just obligated to go if it went to series. There's rumours that his wife was uh, the one who said he doesn't want to do TV. 
we want him he's, he's a film star we want him to do films uh, either way you know they 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 would back the money truck up a bit everyone believed that he was just arguing angling for more money but uh, apparently that wasn't the case and he, he just wasn't interested in committing to a long time television show even though he seemed quite happy with the uh, the way this pilot movie turned out A lot of Pike's traits were carried over to Kirk. Obviously, this being married to his ship. Oh, the Orion Slave boy. So, this is one of the things that seem a little bit dubious nowadays. The idea that Pike would, would pack in working for Starfleet and uh, just go uh, and work for a liar selling girls, selling slave girls. Seems seems a tad dubious when looked at in the, the cold light of the 21st century. <coughs> Excuse me. This was the scene that um, Susan Oliver felt changed the tempo on set, the temperature on set. The minute that she was painted green and put in this black wig, she found that men did treat her differently. And what we know of Roddenberry's sexual predilections, peccadillos, the fact that there's a woman here who just gives herself to over to a man and likes being treated badly. Uh, yeah, you can argue that's a little bit dubious nowadays, but you know, alien cultures are, are alien cultures. They have their own their own philosophies, don't they? Um, if this just sounds like I'm getting distracted by the fact that Susan Oliver's gyrating all over the television screen wearing very little bats because I'm getting distracted by the fact that Susan Oliver is gyrating all over the television screen wearing very little. Apparently, this was, a, like I mentioned earlier, the M NBC executive singled this scene out as being perhaps a little bit too erotic for television at the time. Alex Courage's music, though, is great. Do -do 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 -do. Uh, they're probably not wrong. You know, I, I certainly can't recall seeing something as overtly sexual as that on uh, on 60s television from reruns. Obviously, I wasn't around in the 60s. But um, I believe, was it still the era of people being portrayed as married but sleeping in separate beds and all that stuff? So a scene like that, I, I can understand why the MBZ execs may be a little bit dubious. <coughs> Sorry about that. I, I don't recall if that was trimmed in the menagerie or if they just left it alone. Because either way, they would have had the opportunity, though, to trim the scene when including it in the menagerie. So it wasn't quite as sexy. But they didn't. I like seeing Spock, though, has got his jacket open. Whereas nobody else has. It, it's The wraparoundness of it reminds me of the jumpers from Battlestar Galactica. I always love scenes like that in movies when, uh, you know, this isn't an order and nothing will be said if anyone wants to back out. No one, and I'm surprised they've not done this on something like the Orville, just to have somebody turn around and say, all right, okay, I'm not coming then. And <laughs> the crew just look at him and go, what is it you said? Nothing will be held up against me. Nothing will be held against me if I don't come on this mission. Well, I don't want to come on this mission. It sounds dangerous. You're not ordering me. I'm not coming. Um, that does sound like a gag that the Orville would do. Alright, they've decided that Susan Oliver isn't enticing enough for Captain Pike. See, I'm useless. You know, I'd have just I'd have given in by this point and just taken Susan Oliver around the back. Um, not the back door. <laughs> around the back of the the rocks. Anyway, uh, he's beamed down Major Barrett as number one and um Lieutenant what's her name? Is she Lieutenant Colts, the pixie redhead? I don't remember what her name is. I know she's not very old. She's only 22. The actress who plays the pixie redhead. Let's have a look. 
But so lines of dialogue like that, where he's, he's talking about beating the huge misshapen heads to pulp, is, uh, is that's a rather violent, rather violent. Laurel Goodwin playing Yeoman Colt. That's it, sorry, she's only 22. Best known for being in the Elvis Presley romp girls, according to, uh, girls, 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 sorry, according to this. According to her biographer. <laughs> oh, I love that Vina's getting the claws out. Oh, we're doing the old New Adam, New Eve. That's a good line. They'd have more luck crossing with the computer, obviously. Number one, a lot of number one's characteristics would be ported over to Mr. Spock. She's the one who's working out the inconsistencies of Vina's age. That she should be 18 years older than that. Susan Oliver's got a look of Jennifer Aniston a little bit in this one. Although a bit curvier than Jennifer Aniston. I love the That's great. Ah, you've got a selection of women. And Captain Pike's just maintaining his anger because he's found out that strong emotions fight through the control, which I believe... Isn't that in something else? I don't remember. When you consume as much bad science fiction television as I do. this The idea behind this one has been ripped off quite a lot. <laughs> Unusually strong female drives, i.e. she's in heat. So that's another thing as well. I mean, Star Trek... Star Trek was a sexy show. And it's one of the things that I never understood when we got into the next generation. Suddenly it became sex-less. But right thinking will be rewarded. That's quite a, a telling phrase, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, Star Trek was quite a sexy show. And certainly this episode is very... is a very sexy episode. The whole point of it is to get Captain Pike to shag one of these people. And, uh, you know, he's got the, the gamut there, hasn't he? He's got the blonde, he's got the redhead, he's got the brunette. He's got Courtney, he's got Phoebe, and he's got uh, he's got Monica, he's got Phoebe, and he's got Rachel. God, I love this bridge set. I love the bridge set in the cage. Like I said at the beginning, because it's not got the, the red um, handrail around the building, it does look... It looks a little bit like the motion picture bridge, but the computer displays are nice and colourful, so it gives it more of a coloured look than the original show, than the motion picture, sorry, which looks a little bit beige because of the, the colour scheme and the monitors. The monitors and the computer screens all having colours on them helps give some some joyful... gives a joyful appearance to the bridge set with all that steel and chrome. <coughs> Excuse me. As I said, Jeffrey Hunter um, sadly passed away in 1969. So just after the series went off the air, or around the time the series went off the air. I wonder, I mean, his death was a fall downstairs after a series of minor strokes. I wonder if, you know, being on Star Trek, he possibly would have still had that stroke. He possibly still would have died. But if he'd been in Star Trek, he may not have been out of the country when he had that stroke. I believe he was in Mexico or something. And maybe onset doctors or whatever could have handled it quicker and maybe he'd still be alive to ultimately star in the movies. But that's another consideration. If if Hunter dies in 1969, aged only 42 years of age, then... You know, maybe we don't get Star Trek movies. Maybe they don't recast. You know? And it's one, it's one of those things where you, you think about stuff like that, but ultimately somebody lost a wife, a husband, sorry. May, I don't know if he had kids, but maybe a kid's lost a father, somebody lost a son. It's very possible his parents were still alive. Seems a bit silly to to think of a TV show like that. But it it is interesting to ponder 
the idea of another alternate universe somewhere where this one went to series and what the ramifications of that were. I do love the, the thing I love about Star Trek is when you see past history stuff like that. The looks at the president stopped quite early on, so you know you didn't. You never saw President Reagan though, even though by the point of uh, of Star Trek, he's um, he's 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 been president. I don't know if Roddenberry decided on a time frame when he made this. I think in the making of Star Trek by Stephen Whitfield. It was generally decided that the time frame to Star Trek was far enough in the future that man was still recognisably man. Oh, sorry, far enough in the future that this all this technology was just accepted, but close enough to us that man was still man. I love Pike's bluff, though. The idea that he, he believes the phaser pistol has worked and made a big hole in the wall, and they are convincing them that that's not the case. And I'm so convinced of this, I'm going to fire it at your head now and let's see what happens. I think that's a fantastic bluff. Worthy of Kirk. I think the, I think the difference there, I, I honestly don't think Pike was bluffing. <laughs> I think that Christopher Pike would, would very, very really, very really, would, would probably have really blown that guy's head off. Um, he's very much like Cisco. In that regard, there's a lot of Cisco in Captain Pike. There's a, a roughness to him that Kirk would pretend to be that rough, but it would always be a bluff, and Picard wouldn't even countenance the idea of being that rough. Picard was far more civilised. I keep being distracted by Venus' skirt. I do, I do apologise. <laughs> I love the Pike's one trap mind throughout this entire episode. Is all right. Well, we'll begin our we'll begin our perfectly guided lives after I've shot you through the head, after I've beaten you to a pulp. It is. It's it's an impressively mounted telefilm. I'd love to see this on a big screen. I'd love to see what it looks like on a big screen. Maybe I should get it projected. Oh, that kind of thing is easily doable nowadays, isn't it? Oh, look. Majel Barrett's uh, number one's a bit miffed that he's chose Vina. So she's going to kill them all. Star Trek subtext, though, that uh, it's wrong to treat humans as slaves. Perfectly okay to treat Orion slave girls as slaves, though. <laughs> oh, dear. Ah, uh, but Star Trek's famous compassion comes through. They're going to blow themselves up with the phaser pistol, but they're, they're going to let the Talotian go because they don't they won't kill him either. So for all his bluster, Captain Pike is, is a civilised man. Which makes his ultimate fate all the more tragic, as we'll see in the Menagerie. Pike will be severely wounded in, uh, in an accident which will put him in a wheelchair, able to communicate only in his little beepy, bleepy chair. Um, such a shame. Such a shame they never thought about bringing the character back in another capacity. Maybe Jeffrey Hunter would probably be too too expensive. Although the actor that played him in the in the Menagerie, Sean Kenny, had an uncanny facial resemblance to, to Christopher Pike, so... Maybe they could have recast and got away with it. Especially in the 60s. You know, they did that kind of thing all the time. Or brought back the same actors in different roles all the time. It is interesting to watch this from the, the point of view of now. And see just how little action there is in this. I can see NBC's complaint. To be fair, that as a pilot for... a a television show, it's incredibly well written, it's incredibly well mounted, very expensive, very looking, very cinematic. But it it isn't it isn't a pilot film for a nineteen sixties TV show. 
in the sense of what television was at that point. It, it's very ahead of its time. You know, I think had this been made exactly as it was, maybe 10, 15 years later, maybe in 1980 or something, it would have sold as TV starts to get a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more provocative. You know, this is this is really well 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 produced. There's no other real the real world for it. I feel like I've spent this entire hour just waxing the show's car in terms of its production value. But it the money is all up there on screen. And it, it doesn't I don't think this feels as dated as the show that would follow. You know, um in many respects I think the original Star Trek has aged better than perhaps the next generation has. Certainly in the, in a similar amount of time. So Star Trek in 1986 didn't look as bad or as dated as Star Trek The Next Generation did in 2007, you know, in a comparatively similar amount of time. But I think there's a lot of the ideas in this are very provocative, are very forward-thinking. I think that the ideas behind it, the story behind it, that mankind doesn't want to be slave that mankind you shouldn't make slaves out of people is um is certainly an idea that is still worth exploring <coughs> excuse me susan oliver apparently hated having to do this makeup she says not necessarily that she was lied to but she was misled as to how long this process would take for what is essentially a couple of seconds of screen time she still got gorgeous eyes though has to be said what's interesting this is such a fascinating idea that they found Vina in the wreckage but they'd never seen a human being before so they didn't really have a blueprint they didn't know how to put her back together so they, they've managed it and she's fully functional and she's still alive but there are Places where they got things wrong in the the resurrection of her, in the rebuilding of her, and uh, that's that's a fascinating and really tragic idea. So the idea that Vena's happy to stay here, that you know, she she knows she's living a fake life. She would rather live that fake life. And then they give her Jeffrey Hunter as Christopher Pike to go with her. And it's, again, it's illusion. It's an imitation of life. But, you know, she seems happy with it. You have reality. And it's, uh, it's a bittersweet ending, I think. And again... Not something you were used to seeing on television at the time that this was made, unless it was a play. You know, television tended to be fluff. Still is, in many respects. Entertainment. Um, this is no less entertaining for being thought-provoking, for being challenging. No less entertaining for being deliberate in its storytelling. I don't think this is slow. I don't think this this episode is slow. I think it tells its story in a very deliberate manner and it does a very good job of telling its story in that deliberate manner. I I love how it looks. I think it's an absolutely astounding achievement for the time that it was made. And I would very much like to see more of the adventures of Captain Pike. What I love about this, Jeffrey Hunter playing a very different Captain Pike in this final scene than he was at the beginning. There's a story arc for the captain in this particular episode. Um, whereas the, the story arc for Kirk is very different. I like that the reports are still papers and clipboards. So, you know, technology's not moved on that much. I love that Colt here has the balls to ask him who he would have picked. So basically, Pike, what, what we're saying here is tonight, you know, you can, you can go and pick her up in the mess. And you're in for a fun evening. I don't suppose we should fraternise with the crew, should we? And I love that this little comedic bit at the end. This doctor's a dirty old man. Um, this little comedic bit at the end. 
does foretell how the original show will go at the end. But I like that Pike doesn't play it for laughs. Jeffrey Hunter doesn't play that for laughs. He finds it all a bit, eh, piss off. And then we close with a shot of the planet. And then Matt Jeffrey's wonderful shots of the Starship Enterprise flying off to the next adventure. Uh, none, none of these shots of the Enterprise were used as stock in the show. Whereas the shots of the Enterprise that were made for when no man has gone before would be used as stock. Oh, well, maybe that shot of, the, of it flying towards the camera. I think that may be used. Uh, sorry, Netflix, I don't want you to go straight into the next episode. I want the music to play out. The music's a lot more subdued here than it would be on the uh, show. It doesn't seem quite as over the top. A Desilu production. Oh, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Uh, I always enjoy the catch. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you enjoyed the 100th episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. I'll be back next time with whatever the fancy takes me. It's the thing with this journey that we're on. We never quite know what's around the corner. Okay, I'll see you again real soon. And everything's going to be okay. Goodbye.